the uh, uh, second uh, subject that uh, I want to address, which I think is intimately related to the first concerning freedom and sovereignty uh, in regard to the church's relationship uh, to the state and what we can do, what we need to do, what we're called to do. I think there are primarily two things uh, that scripture would lead us to specifically do. First of all, I should add that um, teaching is doing something. I'm sure uh, Mark would uh, strenuously object if we said teaching things is doing nothing. I mean, teaching is doing something. So when we teach about the sovereignty of God and the implications of the gospel, the freedom of the gospel, that is doing something. And actually, if we teach Christ's lordship, his sovereignty, and the full implications of the gospel, that in itself will have a huge impact upon our churches and upon the community. But what else can we do other than teach? Well, we can teach about more teaching. Uh, That would be the first thing. We can educate. And so I'm going to talk primarily about the gospel and education as a response at this time in our uh, relationship to the state. The other thing that we could do, and that we haven't got time to talk about in this session anyway, is uh, begin to take back welfare. Because the two primary areas into which the state has moved and completely taken over, almost, are education and welfare. And those were two areas which were completely, largely, under the uh, influence and guidance of the church. And he who pays the piper calls the tune. And if the state is paying for and funding and running education, um, it's going to call the dance going to define and determine the curriculum and so forth. So those are the two areas, but the focus of this session is going to be education. I want us to go to just two passages of Scripture briefly. The first one is Psalm 8, Psalm 8, and then I want to go to Matthew 28, 16 through 20. But Psalm 8, beginning there, Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. Because of your adversaries, you have established a stronghold from the mouths of children and nursing infants to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you remember him, the son of man that you look after him? You made him little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him Lord over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, that pass through the currents of the seas. Yahweh, our Lord, how magnificent is your name throughout the earth. And then Matthew 28 Verses very familiar to you. Verses 16 through 20. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And I believe the Greek word there for discipling the nations is ethnoi, not just individuals, but nations, peoples. There is an interesting relationship between Psalm 8 and Matthew 28 because <clears throat> both are related to the original mandate given to human beings, what theologians call the cultural mandate, or some call the dominion mandate, and also because in many respects Christ is the final and total fulfillment of Psalm 8. He is the one under whose feet everything has been placed. Uh, it has been placed under our feet as vice-regents, but ultimately it's God the Son, the Son of Man, under whose feet everything has been placed and brought into submission. Now, one of the challenges of speaking about education to Christians today is that, first, it offends them, and second, uh, that it is seen as a peripheral, typically, and secondary matter for the most part, not seen as a core implication of the gospel. Now, what I tried to show in the last session was that the kingship, the lordship of Christ, the, the f freedom is an implication of the gospel. And when you lose the gospel and Christ's identity in a social order, freedom goes with it. I also want to suggest that when we lose Christ's identity as sovereign and Lord, a truly free education, I don't mean cost-free, although that's important too, but uh, education under God also goes with it. I mentioned that I think in our time the gospel has been truncated, uh, by which I mean thinned, narrowed, uh, to little more at times than personal forgiveness of sins and a place in heaven. But the Apostle Paul writes, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Romans 11.36. All things. Moreover, in Colossians 1.16, he says, For by him... All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. It's not just that he created them, they're created for him. In both Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1, we are told that redemption is about the reconciliation of all things to God. After all, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Would we not expect that Christ, as the true God-man, the one mediator between man and God, would come to claim his property rights? The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, if you prefer the King James. Christ's coming contested Satan's illegitimate claim of ownership. We see that, I think, in Matthew twelve twenty-nine. John Barber has stated, he says, people tend to restrict Christ's death to payment for the sins of his people at Calvary, but what his blood also purchased is a new creation. God will renew the lower parts of the creation because Christ paid the price of its redemption. Because Christ created the cosmos for his purposes and glory, his blood supplies nothing less than the foundation for cosmic redemption. 
And Jesus asserted, actually, that his coming overcame satanic authority. Remember Jesus talking about the strong man, fully armed, guarding his own house. But when one stronger than him comes, he overpowers him, overcomes him and plunders his house. If that is the work of Christ and we are co-laborers, then it becomes our work as well. If it was his purpose, it becomes our purpose. If Christ's work is to destroy the works of the devil, you know, we can ask ourselves, is abortion a work of God? Is homosexual marriage a work of God? Is pagan education a work of God? Is euthanasia and assisted suicide a work of God? Is the denial of freedom for the gospel a work of God? If not, they are among the things that Christ came to destroy. Man's God-given dominion over the earth, which is stated, as you know, in Genesis, repeated in Psalm 8, and I think again in Matthew 28, begins uh, in Genesis, but it develops and unfolds throughout history in relationship to the unfolding of the gospel of the kingdom. So we see its development in Scripture. The Hebrew word for cultivate in Genesis 2.15 is abad, and it means to work and to serve, to work and serve. The English word cultivate has a Latin root, meaning cultivator or planter, and it's the root word for our uh, term culture. Culture. Uh, <clears throat> when my uh, grandparents were uh, alive, they would talk about cultured people. You know, he's a cultured man. Uh, he's, by which they meant he was civilized, well brought up, cultivated. Culture, if you look at an older dictionary, is a state of being cultivated and a type of civilization. So uh, you have in the beginning this uh, a primeval command to work and to serve, to cultivate the earth means much more than agriculture, which is what most of us immediately think of. But it's an intergenerational command for history to shape every area of life according to the will of God. To turn creation into a culture. You recall that God did not plant a garden and remain the gardener. Adam didn't. Uh, Adam and Eve in the garden did not, you know, set up a couple of hammocks and, uh, you know, get the uh, pomegranate juice and, and and just sit there being fanned by a couple of angels. They had to tend the garden, and if they didn't, it would turn to wilderness. So, <clears throat> the commission to human beings from the beginning was under God to turn creation into a culture to cultivate. And actually, culture has a religious association. We still have a very expressly religious association to the word when we use the term cult, the cults. Cult, culture, cultivate, cultivation, civilization. An intergenerational command to fulfill his purposes there. Yes, it had humble agrarian beginnings, certainly, but it led to the development of the earth's resources for civilization. You're sat on the development of the earth's resources for civilization in terms of the cultural mandate. A chair. I mean, Adam uh, wasn't given a chair to sit on, I don't think. He had to make one. So everything that we do with creation uh, concerns culture, the cultivating of things in terms of a purpose. 
And this mandate covers all of creation because everything belongs to the Lord. Now, we know, of course, from the history of Scripture and the story of redemption that man fell into sin and to ruin with the fall. But that didn't dispense with the mandate to work under God. Quite the contrary. And in fact, God promises in Genesis 3.15, doesn't he, a a promise that's developed throughout Scripture that a deliverer is coming. One who will bruise the serpent's head, who will crush Satan. Or is it Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So he's placed under Christ's feet. That's the, the, the beginning of the promise right there in Genesis uh, 3.15. He's crushed by Christ. But Paul says, but now because we are in Christ as the new humanity in Jesus Christ, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There was going to be, in other words, the bringing about of, you know, we know the end of the story, the deliverance of man and restoration. And the Old Testament is the story of a people being called out and delivered to serve that purpose of deliverance, to guard the promises, to protect the seed of the woman. And the Hebrews were delivered from sin Uh, And death pictured for us in the paradigmatic event of the Old Testament of the exodus out of Egypt. So when the Bible uh, talks about redemption and and looks at redemption, uh, deliverance, salvation, it, it takes us always back to Egypt and the deliverance of God's son Israel out of Egypt. And in fact, when Moses and Elijah speak to Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration, they actually speak about the exodus he is about to accomplish. That's there in the Greek, the exodus he is about to accomplish. So the Bible roots the story of redemption in the exodus of this deliverance of this people out of Egypt so that they could obey and serve God. And wasn't that what Moses asked? We want to go, we want to be delivered so that we may worship and serve God. And enter into his promised inheritance. The Reformed theologian Gerhardus Voss notes of this event. He said, first of all, redemption here is here portrayed as, before anything else, deliverance from an objective realm of sin and evil. I'm preaching through Galatians at the moment at Westminster. And in Galatians 1, Paul tells us that we have been saved or rescued or delivered from the present evil age. And that isn't escape from the creation. It means deliverance from the power of, from the bondage to sin and from the power of the age. A people then are called out to create a kingdom culture, having been ruled over by a fallen culture and an alien power in Egypt, oppressed. So by delivering his people from Egypt, God showed himself not only the savior of his son Israel, but the redeemer of a culture. They were called to go into the promised land to cultivate it in terms of the purposes of God. And Israel was established as the model culture of the ancient world. We see that clearly in Deuteronomy, where uh, Israel is pointed to. Who has laws like these laws? The Gentiles will look and say, who has a God like their God? They were to be the model culture. 
That's why Amos prophesied against the pagan nations. It's why, Nineveh, uh, why Jonah was sent to Nineveh. It wasn't just a message for the Hebrews. And in fact, the Bible tells us that the Israelites left Egypt a mixed multitude. It was never, never meant to be an ethnic seed. It was the promise is for the seed of Abraham. And Paul tells us, doesn't he, that the seed ultimately is Christ. And this background is critical, I think, because Scripture is a unity, and all the key doctrines of Scripture can actually be found in seed form in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. They're developed and fleshed out in the progress of God's eschatological purpose. But the implication that I'm trying to draw out for you at the beginning of this is that there are not two separate mandates in the Bible, one about evangelism, personal and spiritual renewal, and a different one about the culture, about creation, a sort of lesser mandate for creation. Rather, the Christian's great commission is present in seed form in the cultural mandate at the very beginning in Adam to rule and subdue, to work and to keep in terms of the purposes of God. And Paul tells us that Jesus Christ in Romans 5 is the second Adam. And as a result, we are the, a new race, as the early church called us, a, a new people, a new humanity in Jesus Christ to work and to serve, Peter says, as a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, which is what the Israelites were called, a royal priesthood, to serve in God's cosmic temple. You know, when you look up into the sky at night and you see the sky looks like a dome, doesn't it? The firmament looks like a dome. We know it's not a hard dome, of course, but it looks like a dome. And actually, the temple was built as a mirror of creation. Eden, uh, the, the tabernacle, the temple, is a copy of Eden. The pomegranates on the, the garments of the priests. And the priest goes in to the temple to serve God and meets with God beneath the cherubim. And, of course, the cherubim barred the way to Eden after we were expelled from the garden. So in the new covenant, we are called as a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood to serve God in the earth as his people, as his called out people, as his ecclesia. In short, the road beginning with what we call the, gosh, cultural mandate in scripture leads directly to the great commission and Jesus' final words to his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth is mine, therefore go and disciple all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey a couple of the things that I mentioned about personal salvation. Everything that I have commanded you. So our Lord, he, in a sense, uh, when you look at the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, it, it shadows or mirrors the story of Israel, which is very interesting. Baptism as through the Red Sea. And then our Lord goes out into the desert for 40 days, not 40 years. And then he goes up onto the mountain to expound the law as the greater Moses. And then he sacrificed as our Passover at the cross and accomplishes our exodus. And the resurrection 
uh, means uh, a final commissioning of his church to go with him to claim their inheritance of the whole cosmos. He, uh, Romans 4.13, I think. To work and to keep. To occupy till he comes. And so the Great Commission requires the teaching and discipleship of all nations and thus the creation of new cultures is simply what the cultural mandate looks like after the resurrection. As people come into subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. So from the beginning of history, God has called to himself a spiritual body to govern as vice-regents all he has created to establish his magisterial rights in every area of life. And the discipleship of the nations is, in a sense, the final phase of filling and subduing in God's purposes in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. That's a sort of potted theology of uh, the gospel in creation, of the, the good news of deliverance and salvation in the Lord Jesus This is the glorious scope of the gospel, and it's a universal restoration that integrates creation and redemption. You know, the philosophers have always been so keen to separate those things. The scholastics wanted to separate those things, nature and grace. And we have modern versions, I think, of scholasticism trying to separate creation and redemption out, somehow radically different. But it's this creation that's being redeemed, not a different one. It's your body that's going to be that's going to be clothed in immortality, not another one. Sorry about that, but that's just the way it is. That's what the resurrection of Jesus really means. It's the affirmation of creation and the redemption of all things in Christ. Not this Greek dualism that bifurcates reality and says, well, you've got ideas and spirit and mind up here, and you've got material bodies and world and creation down here as lesser God is the creator of both, Lord of both, redeemer of both. Otherwise, Christ may as well have just been raised spiritually, but not physically. So they're not separate stories or categories of reality. The segregation of a lower creation from a higher creation is the hallmark of pagan thought, not Christianity, not the Bible. Rather, in biblical faith, Paul says... For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself a few things, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Colossians 1, 19 through 20. Christ, Christ's work of reconciliation, a message committed to us, is now our work. He says that message of reconciliation has been committed to us. And so our work is to extend this great restoration promise to all things. That's the glory of the gospel. What a marvelous thing to be part of. What an incredible calling. That I'm not, as um, William Booth lamented, the founder of the Salvation Army, get saved and mummified and stuck on a pew for the rest of my life, but I'm actually part of a kingdom calling to glorify God and bring all things under Christ, in subjection, every thought captive to obey Christ. That whatever I do, I do it all for the glory of God, even eating and drinking, even the most mundane things in life are not neutral. Least of all, education. So, given that theological structure, 
education has been taken very seriously by Christians as an aspect of their calling, as an aspect of God's work in history. And the family was the first educational institution among the Hebrews. We see that in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Mother and father taught the children and the Mosaic law was memorized whilst the son was apprenticed in his dad's trade. The Levites functioned as teachers and educators, training both priests and the people in God's word. And then after the Hebrews settled in Canaan, prophets began to teach the people as well. Reading and writing is obviously very important in a word-based faith. In an inscripturated faith, education is critical. Of course, in paganism, about when it's esoteric experience and mysticism, education isn't a priority because there's no inscripturated word. The idea of revelation from God is only a biblical idea. It's been aped, it's been copied by the Muslims and the Mormons, but it's unique to biblical faith. What we call the scriptures of paganism are not regarded as scriptures by them. It's not revelation from God, because in their worldview, there is no God who transcends creation. So you can't have revelation as such. You can have the meditations of philosophers, the insights of mystics, the wisdom of sages, but you don't have revelation from a God who speaks into creation. As such, education becomes central, it becomes critical. Reading and writing are central. During the and after the Babylonian exile, people being disjoint from the temple, the synagogue arose. And the synagogue developed a system of schools, gave uh, Judaism, in a sense, a strong institutional basis. And the primary purpose of the synagogue was study, instruction, teaching. Till the age of six, it was done at home, and then children received their teaching at the synagogue. Attendance was made compulsory, actually, in AD 64 by the high priest in the final days of the temple. That was Joshua ben Gamala. Education was free and universal. Think about that. Among the Hebrews, making it available to people of every economic ability because education was funded essentially by the tithe which is how Christians used to fund education. And class sizes were regulated and where students learned writing, arithmetic, they mastered parts of the Psalms, the creation account, the Levitical law. Leviticus was the first book, actually, that they learned. They studied also the Mishnah, that's the oral law, the Talmud. Uh, The Mishnah and Gemerah are a commentary on the... um, The Gemerah is a commentary on the Mishnah. And in the New Testament, we see that actually these synagogues, these places of teaching, were some of the most fertile soil for the apostolic preaching. So we see there in Acts 17, uh, one illustration of it, uh, where they went into the synagogues first to teach. And then in the diaspora amongst the Greeks, the Hellenistic Jews had often adopted um, Greek uh, practices for their own educational purposes. So they simply... Hebraized or Hebraized or whatever word we might put in there of the Greek system, Hebraicized, something like that. And in the early church, then, the synagogue model of education was adopted by Christians. The church in Alexandria, a city founded on the Mediterranean coast of Egypt by Alexander the Great, it developed uh, uh, catechal schools. It, the catechesis was happening, instruction from the very beginning, and we actually get the first mention of a Christian school there from the 2nd century. 
179, Pantanus, a converted Stoic, developed a broad curriculum which covered a wide array of subjects and provided uh, a critical development, actually, in the Christian philosophy of education. All ages and sexes were educated in these schools. The historians Reed and um, Prevost uh, have noted concerning this school, and I quote from their History of Christian Education, students confronted Greco-Roman classics, philosophers, and academic disciplines. They were equipped to converse with the most educated non-Christians. Such conversation was necessary to the propagation and preservation of the gospel. They were taught that there was nothing to fear from open and honest inquiry into all thought and that such inquiry could serve a missionary and apologetic purpose. Clement of Alexandria succeeded Pantanus uh, as the head of the school between AD 190 and 200. And Clement added rhetoric uh, to the curriculum um, and eventually the what we would call the liberal arts curriculum developed. Liber meaning free. So Western education, relating back to our last uh, uh, session, was meant to be the art of freedom. The art of freedom. Now with the eventual legalization of Christianity, there were lots of benefits for Christian education, obviously. The institutional church, education and government did become more involved in each other for better or worse. But the early monasteries required learning to study scripture. So the monks not only read, but they copied manuscripts. They did a a highly specialized work, actually. In the scriptorium, they made books. They copied scripture. They had a library. The library was a section in the uh, monastery. And uh, in the library, they accumulated Hundreds, even thousands of titles. Duplicates were collected and exchanged through the work of the scriptorium. And so it's absolutely indisputable that the monasteries produced many of the finest scholars of the Middle Ages. It was the church. The leading thinkers of Western Europe received their education in the monastery. Out of this was born the Christian university. So I'm just giving you a thumbnail sketch of education. It was the highest achievement of medieval Europe, the Christian university. The origin of the university was essentially church schooling. The monasteries preserved the knowledge and the cathedral schools, the cathedral schools were at the headquarters of the diocese, where the bishop was, of course, and that was the center of life for many educational activities. There were parish priests who established schools in homes and other places, and they became known as parish schools, which if you've ever been to England, England was divided up into parishes, and there a, was a parish school for every parish. Guilds, or universitatis, were corporations formed by monks, cathedral chapters, merchants, craftsmen, and they often grant, were granted charters by emperors, sometimes by popes or a king. And very often, these were actually free from direct church uh, control. And uh, this is the, uh, where we find the origin of our modern degrees of theses writing for a Bachelor of Arts or a Master of Arts or a Doctoral Thesis. They have their origin here. And your, your um, defense of your thesis was originally just to see whether you actually wrote it. 
It wasn't that sort of German ordeal where you can be questioned on any subject by anyone, uh, but uh, was uh, just to test, if, did this guy actually write this? Um, anyway, the two primary types of university uh, of the era stressed, on the one hand, law and medicine in southern Europe, and then in northern Europe tended to stress theology. They were more church-governed, so you had the universities at Bologna, law and medicine. Paris was a religion focus, and they taught the seven liberal arts, which was the origin of our Western liberal arts program. Not that it was perfect, there was still a lot of infection of uh, uh, what I would call um, uh, uh, Aristotelian thinking, some Greek thinking that, was, that had to be shed, needed to be shed, wasn't fully shed uh, by any means. Fast forward to the reformers like Calvin, and you have the establishment of the Genevan Academy and two schools there in Geneva. And the model was actually copied by John Knox and exported to Scotland, where he wanted universal Christian education. And he had a Christian parliament there, too, eventually. Um, and a private school taught children. On the one hand, in Geneva, you had a private school that was teaching the children until about 16 years of age, and then a public school which served as the university. And Luther and Calvin both believed in subsidized universal education for boys and girls. That's an advance on Islam right there back in the 16th century. Their successors, the Puritans and other uh, evangelicals in England, Europe, and America, shaped modern education in terms of educational Calvinism. Harvard was a Puritan institution. Cambridge was a Puritan university. You didn't need a seminary because the university trained our ministers. Throughout England and her colonies, these Christians began elementary schools. Oliver Cromwell himself founded Durham University and started elementary schools all over the place. An entire system of education developed in England and her colonies, which gave us an understanding of the need for universal education. Literacy was obviously critical. And because of their vision of the gospel, which included an understanding of society under God where scripture was important, universal education to train the young in that understanding was a top priority. Top priority for Christians. I can't think of any missional activity that would have been seen as more important for them. As I was saying to somebody in the break, you know, what is it that we do when we do missions in other parts of the world as Christians from the West? Well, we go and we start a hospital and a school and plant a church. And what do we do here? It's interesting, isn't it, that we don't think that, well, what we're doing in East Timor does need to be done here as well. Well, the legacy of Christian education goes on, of course, right into the present day. It's undergoing a revival of sorts. Now, the gospel, the scope of the gospel and the history of the church. So I started with the scope of the gospel because education is central to it. It comes right into the heart of the mandate to teach all things I have commanded is an aspect of the Great Commission. Education is an aspect of the Great Commission. And both the gospel, therefore, and the history of the church testify to the central importance of raising Christians in the faith, raising children in the faith. And I want to point out that Jesus regarded this as so important that he highlights the seriousness of misleading the young. In Matthew 18, Jesus sets a child in front of the disciples in a teaching about the need for childlike humility. And he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, 
It is better for him that a heavy millstone be hung around his neck and that he be drowned in the depth of the sea. Whoever we place our children under, we are to be taught, we are saying, accept their authority as you would receive mine. They are your master. What's what we used to call them? House masters. <laughs> Except their authority as you would receive mine. It's a delegated responsibility. That made me think very hard when my children were born about what I was going to do about their education. Jesus' uh, statement is very, very strong. The term translated stumble in the Greek is scandalizo, which means to throw someone unawares into ruin. Now, we are losing, depending on which study you read, somewhere between 80, 70 and 80% of our children, some even say 85% of our children from evangelical homes in North America by the age of 23. That's significant. That means that the church would be about 70 to 80% better off in the next generation if we just retained our own children through an understanding of the educational mandate. You've asked, at this conference, we've asked, what does the church do in the context of the, its relationship to the state and the massive overreach of the state? The state is nowhere given the mandate to teach in Scripture. Historically, it wasn't recognized as the teacher. State education was introduced in Britain in the late 19th century. Education is the province of parents who can delegate that to Christian teachers to inculcate the faith. Anything that deliberately misleads a child towards ruin and sinful conduct is, in Jesus' estimation, scandalous. And this is why we need to be a voice today and make our voices heard when, even in the public system, young children are being led astray by today the queering of the education system. That's an appropriate term. I think scandal is the appropriate term for the modern Western project in education. Let me give you an illustration from my own adopted country of Canada in Ontario, in Toronto. Ontario provincial government reintroduced a lurid sex education program recently, has forced it on the schools It teaches six-year-olds sexual consent. By 12, it teaches them the intricacies of homosexual relationships. It teaches the kids that there are six gender identities, which is an absurdity. That gender is completely a social construct. There is no such thing as creational male and female. There is a spectrum on which any given individual might fall, and the number of gender identities just grows by the month the LGBTQ2SA, and so on and so forth. The, in, in Ontario, we have a lesbian premier openly married to her partner, a cultural Marxist. By the way, very quickly, cultural Marxism, uh, I use that phrase to refer to the results of the Frankfurt School. When the Russian Revolution happened, there was an expectation that everybody was going to throw off the oppressor and there would be violent revolution and a socialist revolution would occur everywhere in Europe. It didn't happen. Instead, for two world wars, the ordinary man 
went to fight for his country. Uh, so a, a think tank, uh, a research think tank was developed by a, number, a group of Marxists in Frankfurt to uh, research why the socialist revolution had not happened. And they came up with the answer that the problem was the Judeo-Christian worldview in the West with the free institutions of church and family, that while those were strong, it would be impossible for uh, a revolution to take place and for the culture to be undermined so that the state could move in and create a socialist revolution, a scientific socialistic state. So their plan was to, through the uh, educational institutions... Uh, revolutionize the culture by ideological subversion, by demoralization, by that quite literally demoralization, by creating chaos, social chaos, so that the state would be needed to move in. They have had tremendous success. They, they bounced around a little bit, eventually landed in the United States. Have you ever asked yourself, I certainly have, where all the hippies went? Where'd they all go? Peace, love, lentil soup, VW camper vans, make love, not war, you know, hair down to here. Where'd they all disappear to? They went into the university because they were pretty smart. And they became the chairs of various departments. And they've steadily revolutionized education. That's what I mean by cultural Marxism. Now, in Ontario, the rabbit hole went even deeper. But if you were following the press at all in that center of civilization, Canada, I'm sure you were. The deputy education minister at the time of the transition of this woman, Kathleen Wynne, into government was a man named Benjamin Levin, who has repeatedly acknowledged his role in overseeing the development of this curriculum, was recently sent to prison for making child pornography. He was a professor at the University of Toronto, pleaded guilty on three counts. In short, a man guilty of serious sexual offences against children has declared he was brought in to implement the new radical policy. Now, that's not just Canada. You take a look at the education in California. Children there are having to self-identify at the beginning of term to determine what gender they are and what washrooms they're going to use. How do you account for, how do we account for, the promotion of a queer revolution in America, in Canada, in Britain? Well, I want to suggest to you that these brazen efforts to rationalize moral degeneracy within the social order find their root in a theological reality of guilt. And this is, again, why the gospel is central to everything that happens in our culture. Without the gospel of Christ and the atonement, man is left with unresolved guilt. I mean, when I come to the table of the Lord... I'm dealing with my guilt and sin. And so are you. Our justification in Christ, the covenant meal, and we confess our sin, we put things right with our neighbor so that we don't eat and drink judgment on ourselves. Because Paul says some of you are sick and have fallen asleep. You've died because you've abused the Lord's table. That's the significance of the covenant meal. And there we have our sin dealt with. But what about those people living in habitual, unrepentant sexual immorality and sin in contravention of God's law? Whoever they are, whatever their office, they face persistent gnawing guilt in the core of their being. That's the human condition. 
Now, that situation is intolerable to live with without justification. And there are only two ways you can be justified. And only one of them is legitimate, real. You can either be justified through the atonement of Jesus Christ by repentance and faith, by regeneration, or by all manner of efforts at self-justification and atonement, by what we might call masochism or sadomasochism, by seeking a covering, which is what atonement means, for your sin, to cover up. Remember, that's what our first parents did. They tried to cover their nakedness. And God actually, in the end, performed the first animal sacrifice, clothed them in animal skins. The atonement of Christ covers our sin. Actually, it removes our sin. But outside of Christ, how can sin be covered? Well, the favorite form of atonement, of self-justification, is the rationalization of sin through education. The rationalization of sin through education, a subversive process whereby evil is called good and good is called evil, where progressively we redefine moral truth that condones, supports, and normalizes sin. At that point, justification is within reach, people think. If we can just normalize sin, society, politics will save us. We will be justified, not by grace, but by politics, by the state. However, what must be eliminated is any potential rebuke of that new morality. To permit a rebuke threatens the security of the rationalization which keeps personal and public guilt at bay. See, in other words, you can't allow institutions to exist that rebuke that sin because they are a constant reminder of guilt. And you can't be justified if you're guilty. This is why we have in the media and the progressive cultural elite, they want to demonize every opposition as evincing mental phobias and psychological oppression and hatred and so on. And we have to have a curriculum that will sexualize our children and normalize perversion. From the standpoint of the gospel, the only way to account for this desire to cause little ones to stumble is a deep-seated need for justification. The rationalization of sin. You see, if we can make children participants in the practice and social approval of sexual sin, guilt, which they think is merely a social construct, will disappear. The God-defined family is a living, breathing rebuke to sexual perversion, and it must be destroyed as the normative pattern. That's why the U.S. Supreme Court has redefined marriage. Because that means marriage can basically mean anything. There is no transcendent court of appeal to which the Supreme Court sees itself as accountable. So it will rationalize sin and save man from his guilt by normalizing it. This also means that the church, as a purveyor of the old morality, must be silenced, marginalized, and forced to support the new rationalization. That secures the space for sin and immorality to be supported and publicly be approved, and children must be reprogrammed by state indoctrination away from that old morality and from the normative family model. In Canada, they're dropping the language of husband-wife, 
They're dropping the language of mother and father in the school, its significant other, its partner, its carer, caregiver, any language they can think of. They're taking, the, 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 even on the um, uh, interviews with your doctor now, you have to self-identify your gender, other. Everywhere you go, there is an attempt to destroy, create total social chaos by the destruction of the family. Destruction of marriage, and it is done through education. For what is the new normal, that is the new good, must become a standard, and what is standard must be enforced. Now that is, if ever there was scandalizo, this is it. God's word is plain that those who do such things don't alleviate guilt, they compound it. Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's a fearful thing to fall under the censure of the king of kings. As guilty of scandalizo. And so the church must remain faithful to its call, to all of culture, to repent and believe the gospel and to take up its historic mandate with children to teach all things I have commanded you. Now, let me close with this very, very quickly. The Christian perspective in Christendom historically was that there were were three institutions that had a teaching mandate, the family, the church, and the school, all involved in instruction. Family in the raising of their children, the church in catechizing and teaching. We see this throughout scripture. And the school or the academy is part, has been part of Jewish and Christian culture from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. In fact, we even find schools of the prophets in uh, 2 Kings 2 and uh, 6. And we've seen that the university was a direct development of all of this. But when these institutions fail to teach biblical faith, the cultural results are dramatic. And that's what we're seeing. These ideas did not fall out of heaven onto our Supreme Court justices. They were taught them. They were educated in progressivism. They were shaped by the educational system and structure. And incrementally, by this progressive creep, suddenly it's as though we've hit the edge of the precipice and boom, we're shooting down at an incredible rate. The observant Christian sees the assault on a Christian form and content of education in all of these things as very, very much advanced. So if the church abandons its teaching mandate, the family is exposed and misled and the schools will follow suit. Because the foundations of our education were set deep in the Christian faith, we find the root of educational troubles Not out there, but in the apostasy of Christianity in the church. That's why this is a church issue. The state has overreached. We stepped back from this responsibility of education. The state moved in. And in our relationship to the state, I believe that the, perhaps the most critical battlefront in all of this is education. I spent a lot of time and continue to spend a lot of time in Christian apologetics where you're trying to redeem delinquent minds in the academy. And I'm involved with um, uh, various uh, organizations in um, teaching in Canada and in the United States in trying to inculcate a Christian worldview in lawyers, young stu- legal students, young lawyers, and those shaping culture. It's harder work when you get them at that age because you've got to try and undo so much of what they've been taught to then rebuild. But when they get it, the, it's like the penny drops, you've given them a new Bible. It's incredible. It's a very rewarding experience. 
But what of the opportunity to nurture them from this age? To that end, at Westminster, we began a classical Christian school a year ago. We're just moving into our second year because we were tired of talking about the problem of education and not doing anything about it. The challenge to the church today is whether we are going to be faithful to God's word in our families as parents and in the church in terms of the word of God to teach, yes, in the church, to teach in the home, yes, but to establish the Christian school and the academy to advance Christian education rooted in the sovereignty and the government of God. We have to get that foundational part right in order to reveal the redemptive purpose of God. Man as God's image bearer, yes, a fallen sinner, but his image bearer, that in Christ are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And you know, this can happen quicker than most people think. Hitler turned Germany around through capturing education in the Nazi youth organization so that he had a practically a free hand with Nazism. Look how quickly various lobbies in our countries have transformed education. If we actually took responsibility for Christian education again as churches, the transformation could be remarkable and also rapid. Revelation must again be made basic to education in terms of the gospel for God's ordained future rather than salvation of man by man. Now you may be asking at the end of all of that, I do that when I say that I've got a minute left. You began in Psalm 8 and with the Great Commission. The psalm is actually clear about the hope of the gospel, that children have a key role in God's glorious purposes in the gospel, out of the mouth of babes and infants. You have established strength or a stronghold because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. The gospel makes plain that Christ is Lord and is in the process of having all his enemies made his footstool. That's what the Bible says. He must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be defeated is death. Psalm 2 tells us about the work of Christ in history as the ruler of the nations. The nations are his inheritance. And we're told that one of the ways Christ stills and silences the enemy and avenger is through children. Of all things. Through children. So how does he do it through children? How does he silence his enemies? By having them raised up and taught in the truth of the gospel for every area of life and thought. Because a generation of children, Christian children, transforms the future. Because education is a plan for the future. It's not just learning about facts. Education is a blueprint for the future. And those that govern the minds of the young shape the course of the future. That is a truism. God silences his enemies by an educational mandate given at the Great Commission. And when children are raised to love God with heart, mind, soul, and strength, in a faithful, biblical understanding of all of life, and grow as true worshippers, God's ordained future emerges, and thus his enemies with their false gospel are silenced. The enemy in the Avenger is stilled by the strength of tomorrow, sitting at small desks with the curriculum of Christ. This is the hope of the gospel, I think. The Great Commission. It's like 
the kingdom that leavens the loaf. Starts so small, just a tiny bit of leaven, but it works through the whole loaf. It's like the mustard seed. Seems so small, just a few children. It becomes the largest tree in the garden. The Great Commission is the final phase of the creation mandate, the cultural mandate after the resurrection, and central to it is education, and we abandon that task at our peril. My challenge to you as pastors, as church leaders, think about starting a Christian school as soon as possible, encouraging parents in home education and encouraging pastors and leaders to use a portion of the tithe to help fund education. In Scripture, only a tenth of the tenth went to the priest for worship. The rest was for health, welfare, and education. 